You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, now as we turn to your words, speak to us, and may we not harden our hearts to your word, may we not be overthrown by idolatry, but to turn from our idols and to you, the true and living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last week, Andrew uh, preached to us on uh, Romans, oh, sorry, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the end of it. And uh, I've included again uh, the final verses of that passage just to sort of connect it with what uh, I have to say to you tonight uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is the third chapter in. Uh, a, a section here in 1 Corinthians that goes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, actually through 11, verse 1, on idolatry. The presenting issue is uh, questions, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 8, of foods uh, offered to idols there in uh, the Corinthian culture, food offered to pagan idols, and questions about that for uh, Christians, but the the real matter at stake is uh, idolatry. And I'll get at what that really means, but um, the the contrast to uh, idolatry is what Andrew said last week about the Christian being one who is wholly given over to Jesus Christ. He said that all Christians, all followers of Jesus Christ, those who believe in Jesus and stake their life in him, uh, there is no other option to, but to be one who is wholly given over to Jesus Christ, uh, not a divided creature, but one who's singular in their devotion uh, to Jesus. And this, this isn't just clergy. Um, it's not a, a sort of elite class of Christians. It's just all uh, real, genuine believers and followers of Jesus Christ are those wholly given over uh, to Jesus. And we see that in the end of chapter 9, which you have there. You can see in your bulletin or in the Bibles on page 957. Um, He says, uh, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He uses this athletic metaphor. He does elsewhere too, Paul does, because uh, Corinth... um, had uh, every two years at the time something called the Isthmian Games. That's because Corinth is on an isthmus. I've said this before, is a strip of land connecting two larger pieces of land. So Corinth's there on the isthmus, and they had the Isthmian Games uh, every uh, two years, which was a lot like the Olympics. Um, And so here he's using something from their contemporary culture to help them understand what it means to be a Christian, uh, a life of perseverance. Uh, staying the course, running the race with the object in mind, which is uh, eternal life with God, uh, um, faith in Jesus Christ. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, he says. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Because the athletes who won, instead of a gold, silver, or bronze medal, they got a, a, a wreath crown, which you know is a dead plant. So eventually it withers and, and uh, fades away. 
Um, but those who, who discipline themselves, who are singular in their, um, uh, their devotion to their athletic feats for this imperishable crown, I mean, you might think for our context like football, college football, that might make more sense for you. If you're an athlete, if you're a college football player, right, if you play for Alabama, right, I, I mean, I used to, I used to uh, play, I hope it was Division Three or two, or I think it was Division Two. It wasn't Division Three. I played Division Two track and field. Even then, you know, my whole life was uh, was wrapped up in being a track athlete. But if you play Alabama football, I bet you know you just eat, drink, sleep, breathe, everything. Your whole life is consumed by this for four years. Well, how much more so for an even, even the best you'll get is you know an SEC championship. Um, but how much more so uh, for the Christian who has the prize of eternal life? Uh, and it's not aimless, as Paul says, and he says, and this is um, fascinating, but I discipline my body, I discipline myself to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Even Paul, you know, concerned about the topic of perseverance, the, how tragic would it be for him or any of us who proclaim the gospel to find ourselves led astray in the end and to be uh, disqualified from the, uh, the eternal prize uh, that is up ahead. And this is, uh, this is the cost of being a follower of Jesus because inherently it requires this perseverance, this lifelong uh, perseverance. Life isn't easy to begin with. It's full of suffering, uh, but Christians will faith uh, face even uh, more suffering as a result of their faith. Uh, Jesus called this, uh, the, he said, count the cost, and he said it's, it's like bearing one's cross. Um, you're signing up for death. You're, you have to die to your old life uh, to follow me. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book using the same uh, phrase, the cost of discipleship, and said when uh, Jesus uh, calls a man, he bids him come and die come and die. Uh, and that's because life is like this. It's like being a, an athlete uh, who must uh, uh, keep himself uh, in the game. Um, I, I bring that all in uh, because we had it last week, but it connects to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, which gets at the heart of the matter of food offered to idols because it's ultimately about idolatry. And remember I said that's any devotion to something else other than the one and true God, our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, pulls us away uh, from genuine faith. Um, I've been uh, recently fascinated with a topic of uh, nominal Christianity, or you could say Christ cultural Christianity. Maybe you've heard me talk about that uh, before. And that's because, um, because I, I see it here in the South. Um, I come from California, specifically the San Francisco Bay Area, and San Francisco is the, according to the Barna Research Group, is the least churched city in the United States. Meanwhile, Birmingham's number three most churched city in the United States. So it's almost like a total opposition. Here we are from where I came from. And as a convert to Christianity in San Francisco, you either, for the most part, were not a Christian or you were. They're just, from my upbringing, I had very little acquaintance with anything like uh, nominal, in name only Christian or cultural Christianity. Maybe you could be a cultural Roman Catholic, but for the most part, 
there's not much of uh, cultural uh, Protestantism. And I, because I've been fascinated with this uh, topic the last sort of six years or so that I've been here in the South, more recently uh, been looking into it and reading some books, and I keep coming across uh, the verses from uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, which I brought, if you were here Easter, um, I brought this in. I want to read it again. These are some of the most uh, difficult uh, words in the Bible, perhaps. And um, they're really, they're related to what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, I mean, those are tough words to swallow. And um, they, you know, how do we keep something like that in tension with something like these words from uh, Romans chapter 8, which um, are some of the most beautiful and uplifting words of the Bible in contrast, where Paul ends um, uh, Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things uh, to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there's a... Um, there's a tension between those uh, two passages that I see in uh, Matthew chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. And so how do we make sense of this tension as, as gospel people, as people who believe in, um, in God's grace uh, for us through Jesus Christ and that salvation is uh, by grace through faith in him? Uh, well, chapter 10 is, is real similar to what um, Jesus is saying there in, in Matthew chapter 7. As someone said to me before uh, the service, this is a difficult uh, passage to preach on, and it is. Um, because Paul starts first out of the gates with a warning. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Uh, I don't want you to be unaware about what? I don't want you to be unaware about idolatry, the dangers of idolatry uh, for even the Christian. Uh, that uh, could uh, lead us astray and lead us to something like a, a cultural Christianity. Um, uh, uh, and this is a, a lot like Matthew chapter 7 and in contrast to, to Romans chapter 8. Um, again, this concept, because it's so uh, bizarre to me that one could be this way, I've been uh, looking into it and reading books, and some of the books that I've read, I have to admit, uh, are a bit legalistic, that are addressing the topic of sort of cultural Christianity. But there's uh, one that I found that just was published a, a couple few months ago um, by a pastor named Dean and Sarah in uh, Florida called The Unsaved Christian. Uh, reaching cultural Christianity with the gospel. I recommend it to you to, to pick up. To, it could be challenging. Uh, just hear some of the, um, the chapter titles. Uh, religion without salvation, characteristics of cultural Christianity. Civic religion, generic faith that demands and asks nothing of its followers. 
um, uh, uh, let's see, the Country Club Church, how lax church membership fosters cultural Christianity, Christmas and Easter moving beyond cultural observance to life-changing implications. But here's the one for you. Um, Chapter 14, Faith, Family, and Football, Ministering to the Bible Belt. (laughs) I already brought up football. Um, Well, let's see what he says. And he's in the Bible Belt because he's in the panhandle of of Florida. I just want to read to you an excerpt uh, from chapter 14. In the Bible Belt, identifying as a Christian is a way of life. But sadly, believing the gospel and following Jesus are often not. The disconnect is real, but the Christian affiliation is stronger in the Bible Belt than in other expressions of cultural Christianity, which provides an incredible opportunity for the church in the South to break through and make the gospel known to a region that is saturated with access to the gospel, but no true understanding of the gospel. This realization allowed me to see that the Bible Belt is a mission field where the harvest is abundant and the workers just don't realize it. To gain an understanding of the mission field of the Bible Belt, one must first understand that it is different than the cultural Christianity that exists in other areas of the country. The Bible Belt version of cultural Christianity can outwardly seem uh, pretty in step with actually following Jesus as Lord. In most cases, there isn't glaring heretical theology. The people know Bible stories and verses, attend church, can say the Lord's Prayer from memory, and take pride in identifying as a Christian. It sounds really close to the real thing because it is an all-consuming part of their lives. This makes things very complicated and also very urgent for mission as the difference between close, quote, close, and quote, wrong have eternally catastrophic Uh, consequences. Um, Well, I bring this in because what we see at the very beginning of chapter 10 is a sort of nominalism in Israel, a sort of a a cultural affiliation with Yahweh. There in verses 1 through 5, you know, they they were with Moses. They followed him into the wilderness it even equates going through the Red Sea and being behind the, the uh, or having going through the, the, the uh, pillar of cloud like a baptism of sorts, of affiliating themselves with Moses. And almost like, uh, if you can think about that as ba- like, like our baptism, or that they were provided manna in the wilderness by God uh, to have a spiritual food and a spiritual drink too. Remember that there was a, a rock in the wilderness um, and they were thirsty, and, and God said to Moses to, to strike the rock and water would come out, that he would be on the rock and provide, that God would be on the rock and provide uh, water for them. And just as they uh, basically partook in the, the life, a lot like we could uh, partake in uh, baptism and the sacrament of communion, and even they were there uh, with Moses in the wilderness, and yet... Uh, some were overthrown, it says in verse 5. Overthrown to what? Overthrown uh, to idolatry, which we'll see in the following uh, verses. Um, And and Paul says in uh, verse 6 and elsewhere that these things, this is all from, these examples for the most part come from Exodus and Numbers. He says these things were actually written for us uh, as examples. 
as a warning against idolatry. Well, what is idolatry? Uh, what is an idol? An idol is uh, any uh, god that's not the one true God. And in and, and the history of Israel, we saw this manifested in uh, tangible ways, like things like the golden calf uh, or statues of foreign gods from neighboring nations like Baal. Um, but it's interesting here, the examples that he gives, the idolatry isn't necessarily that. They're matters of the heart. They're matters of the affections. The things that led them astray were the, the grumbling or the, the sexual activity that was equated with Baal of Peor. Um, it's not necessarily the, the, the worship of the statuettes, the trinkets, or whatever, the tangible things. It's the, the matters of the heart that are the, the problem there in verses uh, uh, 6 through 11. Um, and the major implication that um, Paul gives the individual Corinthians in verse 12 is, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If these are all examples written for us who are in the church in Corinth or in Birmingham, Alabama, just as Israel was led astray by idolatry, um, take heed. Uh, that this could happen to you. I mean, these were people who saw God, his, his, his power and glory manifested in ways that we've never experienced, and yet still uh, lacked faith, a trust in him to provide uh, things like as simple as food and drink when he provided a departure from, from Exodus. And so Paul says, take heed. Uh, it's similar to a verse from uh, 1 Timothy where Paul tells uh, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you have older translations like the King James, he also says, take heed. So take heed of uh, oneself is the, the, uh, the first implication of all this story about idolatry there at the beginning of, of chapter 10 for, for anyone in his audience. Uh, just as he said at the end of chapter 9, you know, this, this even could happen to me, even to Paul the Apostle. You know, Paul the Apostle says, even I uh, take heed lest after preaching to others, I myself uh, should be disqualified. So all this begs the question, can a Christian lose his or her faith? Can someone with faith in Jesus Christ lose it? Well, my answer to that is, well, maybe they never were genuine believers to begin with. John says in 1 John, in talking about some people who, who left the apostolic church, he says uh, to the church, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued uh, with us. You see that? They, they departed from the faith. And there's concern about that. And John says, well, they never actually were of us. If they were, they would have uh, stuck around. And so my word to you about this is just to make sure that that isn't you. To take heed. To make sure that uh, this isn't you. And a related implication is there in verse 14 is to flee from such idolatry. <clears throat> you know, the idolatry isn't as obvious as the, you know, the statues that we worship. Remember, they're the matters of the heart, seen particularly in places of the grumbling and the complaining and the lack of trust uh, in God 
to provide in our life. And he says to flee from this. Uh, don't, you know, don't tarry. Don't, don't walk away from this type of idolatry, but to run and not walk, to escape. It's like if someone came in here and yelled fire, you know, what would you do? You probably wouldn't mosey out. You'd probably quickly leave. You remember the story of uh, Joseph and uh, Potiphar's household and Potiphar's wife wants to have uh, her way with him and he's the second coat that's stolen from him. She grabs the coat and he flees naked. <laughs> he, he, fl- he fled from the sexual immorality. He fled from the idolatry. And likewise, Paul says, uh, to, to flee from uh, such idolatry. Let me read a little bit uh, more from, from this book, from the Bible Belt chapter. Um, this is toward the end of that chapter. It's a um, the, sort of a, a sidebar, kind of grayed out box, profile, Bible Belt Christian. The cultural uh, Christian living in the Bible Belt doesn't have a theological hang-up prohibiting them from following Jesus. They have an issue with surrender and obedience. Amanda sang at church in high school. She believes in Jesus. She intended on saving sex for marriage and being a good Southern housewife. Then she got to college and saw that a lifestyle like uh, that just wasn't, quote, realistic. She says, everyone does normal things like hook up, drink before the legal age, and live with serious boyfriends before getting engaged. None of her previous theological beliefs uh, changed. She just counted the cost of following Jesus and decided it didn't align with the real world. So she lives in the tension of trying to make her, quote, normal lifestyle reconcile internally to what she knows to be true of God. And then at the bottom there, it says, the Southern dilemma is this, I believe in Jesus, but truly surrendering to him would interfere with my life. And there's a heart check list of questions. I'm gonna just read them for you, for me, for all of us. Is there anything in my life that I know to be contrary to a biblical ethic? Fill in the blank. I'm willing to follow Jesus unless it interferes with blank. Well, what is it for you? List the potential consequences of surrendering to Christ. List potential consequences of not surrendering to Christ. Is there a biblical mandate that I secretly believe is unfair for God to ask of people? Well, that's uh, idolatry uh, in the South. The temptations uh, towards those types of things. I mean, that's just an example of a young woman. It's probably something else uh, for you. But Paul gives us a good word. I'll leave on a positive note, on a happy note, an encouraging note uh, there in verse uh, 13 about temptation and the way out and escape. He says that no temptation is too powerful for us. No matter what uh, comes in this life, we're given the reassuring message that God will always uh, provide a way of escape And this could mean all manner of things. It could mean God's guidance in our life, need for perseverance, uh, prayer, ability to turn to God and his word in the Bible in times of trouble, or Christian fellowship like tonight, or the sacraments that we'll receive, all all ways of um, maintaining that perseverance, the, the escape to help us to flee from idolatry. But ultimately the way of escape is what? Is Jesus Christ. 
As Jesus himself said in John 14, which we often uh, read at funerals, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, so the, the ultimate way of fleeing from all this is to keep our, our hearts set on Jesus, uh, to look to him in these times of temptation. In our um, service during the offertory, we'll have a, a hymn that's sung for us by Fanny Crosby called All the Way My, the Savior Leads Me. Um, she's most uh, famous for Blessed Assurance, and she lived in the turn of the last century, the, 18th, uh, the 1800s to 1900s, and she was blind most of her life, uh, blinded when she was six weeks old. It's funny, if you look her up online, you see photos of her, she's wearing like these small sunglasses in the 1800s. You know, I didn't think they had such a thing then. <laughs> but um, here's a woman who had been blind her whole life, and something like that is certainly a temptation uh, to grumble against God, to have a sense of faithlessness or a, a, a victimhood. You know, why me? Uh, why would God allow such a thing to happen to me? But she didn't do that. She wrote not only this hymn, but something like 5,000 uh, hymns in her whole life. I found a Christianity Today article uh, describing her life and a minister in that article they quote, said to her once, I think it a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. And uh, Fanny Crosby responded at once as she had heard such comments before. She said, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind, said the poet who had been able to see only for her first six weeks of her life. She says, because when I get to heaven, the first face that, I shall, ever, that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. When you hear the hymn, you'll, you'll, now that you know the story about her blindness, I hope you'll see that in, in the narrative. Uh, but here's one who, even in her blindness, uh, looked to Jesus as the way of escape and wasn't tempted to uh, have her heart fixed on something else, some form of idolatry to lead her astray. And so here's my uh, final word to you, which is just a rehash of what Paul said, is that I don't want you to be unaware. To, to be aware of the possibility of such a thing like this book calls the, the unsaved Christian, uh, of cultural Christianity, of nominalism, um, and to take heed, could this apply to you? Uh, are you in danger of that, tempted towards things to take you away, to take heed, to take stock of your life daily, and to flee from idolatry, the, the things that captivate your heart uh, more than God, that misdirect your affections, and uh, to trust ultimately that Jesus is the way, is the ultimate way of escape from all these things. And here I just leave you with this word as, as your uh, lifelong uh, escape hatch are, are these uh, words from uh, Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved.
Believe it with all your heart and confess it with your mouth. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.